Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. This is Ingrid Cochran. I'm CEO of PacesConnection.com, and we will be discussing, um, well, continuing our discussion on mental health in America. Um, our episode for today, uh, we really did have to pivot uh, and kind of change course. We were, uh, we were at first going to tackle um, mental health and athletes, um, and really what we want to focus on today is um, how we as a country feel and should respond when it comes to the mass shooting that just occurred in um, Robb Elementary School in Texas. And so we will tackle that amongst other things today when it comes to mental health. Um, I want to take this time to introduce my co-host, Matthew Portell, who is the Director of Communities with Paces Connection. Hey, thank you, Ingrid. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, when, when things occur, uh, sometimes we pivot. And I think what happened uh, this week, uh, and most listeners know, I, I just left public ed. So uh, it, it definitely, uh, it, it, it hit differently. Um, and it's, it's left a lot of us shaken. However, I do think that um, what Caleb has to bring to this conversation is so powerful because in 2008, he graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and was commissioned as an officer in the United States Army with 90, or 972 other candidate, uh, cadets. But the difference between Caleb and his classmates was that while they, the majority were actually sent to war, Caleb went to the NFL. Um, as a professional football player. Well, I didn't know at the time he was uh, about to fight his own battle, and it was an inner war that almost cost him his life. Um, I've talked to Caleb many a times, and I can tell you um, he is very transparent. So, Caleb, welcome, and we are excited to talk to you. How are you, um, given the current situation, um, and, and just how are you? I'm doing well, and I want to say thank you to both you and Ingrid uh, for creating this space and having these conversations and really inviting me uh, to be part of it. I think it's it's truly special, and I think as we see the news unfold like we saw yesterday, um, it's just wildly and increasingly more important every single day. And so I am here uh, from my home in Nashville, Tennessee, and definitely have a heavy heart. Uh, given the, the the circumstances and the events that have unfolded um, and unfortunately continue to unfold in this country. Well, and let's let's start the way we start with most. And how did you come in to to this work? When what was your experience with ACEs and finding out about ACEs and how it impacts um, so many people across the globe? Absolutely, I think. You know, we were briefly talking about that and I was trying to pinpoint like a moment uh, of really connecting the dots in my life. And I think there, you know, healing happens in layers. Um, and so there are those moments of like early on when I, I didn't really draw the connection between, you know, the adverse childhood experiences that I had and the traumatic um, reality that it was creating or the chaos that it was creating in my adult life until later on in my healing journey. Um, but I definitely, you know, I was, I remember playing in the NFL, which really was like the epitome of everything that I had ever worked for in my entire life. And I had never been more miserable. I had never felt more trapped 
more than anything, never felt more trapped, never felt, you know, unfulfilled as unfulfilled as I did when I was in the league. And I had reached this point that I worked for my entire life. And I realized that I missed it somewhere along the ways. Um, and there was just so much e emotional chaos in my life. And I didn't have the tools to regulate. I didn't have the tools to navigate that aware, uh, navigate that with any sort of awareness or intentionality. Um, and so that's when like a, a lot of my, my substance abuse, um, started to really become very prevalent in my life. I knew I had a problem when I was, and if I can be frank here, having to do lines of cocaine to stay awake for practice. Like I knew there was something awry here. <laughs> there was something going wrong here. And I had a moment after a game that well, a lot of us went out to a party and everyone went home and I continued to party. And I remember waking up one morning and kind of realizing that this, the mixture of drugs and alcohol that was sitting on my bedside table, like my heart should have stopped. My heart really should have stopped. And I had a moment of like, I am actively trying to kill myself. I'm afraid to walk away from the game because this is my source of belonging. This is my source of identity. This is everything I've ever worked for. And these are also all of the expectations that people have of me. And I'm trying to live up to, and to measure up to these expectations, but I feel so trapped. There's no way out. So I knew that I was actively trying to kill myself or actively trying to create a situation where I would blow up my life for, per se, and I would be forced out. And that's kind of when I knew that, you know, it was time to hang up the cleats. And I think that was the beginning journey of, you know, that first therapy session of being like, why was this so important to begin with? Like what happened? And honestly, one of my first therapy sessions, I remember, you know, working through this systematic process with a therapist and realizing that when I was six years old, I scored the game winning touchdown. And this isn't, isn't how you like would define trauma necessarily, but I'm so thankful for the ongoing conversations that we can really broaden the definition of trauma. But I, I had just won the, the game, scored the game winning touchdown, y'all, and Ingrid. This isn't just any football game. This is the citywide championship. Okay. <laughs> and I, and I just, I remember running to the sideline and my mother was there and she had this massive smile on her face and she grabbed me by the cheeks and she said to me, son, I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. You scored the game winning touchdown. And that moment marked me. And I never knew why the pursuit of success and accomplishment and do more, be more, achieve more, hustle more, grow more, never stop for the life of me was so important to me until I connected that dot. And so I don't know if I would necessarily, you know, adverse childhood experiences like some other people's experiences. And I definitely had my fair share of other traumatic experiences in, high, or in, in my early childhood. Um, but I remember that moment marked me. Um, and it marked me in a different way because in a lot of ways, it looks innocent, it looks good, it looks healthy, right? But there was something that registered inside of me that says, oh, if I can score more touchdowns, literally and metaphorically, I'll find and I will fulfill the deepest longings of that I have as a human being. Yeah, I def that definitely resonates with me, especially in my work in um, psychology um, as a professor and, uh, and in child development making sure that my students understand what it means when children experience kind of performance-based yes. praise and um, what they, in, in kind of the um, actions of love. And so when, if your parent isn't verbalizing how much they love and, and, and care about you on a normal basis, 
but only reserve it for when you uh, make good grades or yeah. score the winning touchdown or whatever performance that they that they believe is um, central to kind of, you know, this rewards and consequences based uh, approach to parenting then um, then it can have a real impact on a child um, where they believe that that uh, verbal or even physical um, expression of love um, is only coming when I am doing X, Y, Z. And so that is something that is common and does have a real impact on children and can negatively impact their development, especially emotional development. Yeah. I also grew up in a home where I would say that my mother was my primary caretaker. My father was working. We didn't grow up in a home that was like, you know, there, there wasn't extra money at the end of the month, put it that way. And so there's a lot of financial stress. My dad was always working, always tired. And my mother, she started to live vicariously through me from a very, very young age. And I knew that like my mother, if I could just pinpoint her or define her in that, in that season of life when I was younger, she had never worked or dealt with her trauma or her experiences. And she had no understanding of self-regulation. And so she was in a lot of ways, kind of this frantic ball of energy. And I was always on high alert as an early age, always on high alert, watching my mom and every move, waiting for the proverbial shoe to drop and all hell break loose in our family. And that created such an anxious attachment in me at such a young age. And I needed that closeness to feel regulated. I needed to be so enmeshed with her. I needed her to be approving of me. I needed her to be loving of me and supporting of me. And so having that moment where I scored the game when he touched down, everything became about this standard of excellence in every area of my life. And the hard part about that is like as a high achieving student, as a high achiever, as this, this kid who has a, such a young age, a standard of perfection, there is no room for error. There's zero room for error because only time I'm ever praised is when I hit the mark. And then it comes around with when I do need help, I met with, well, the Caleb that I know doesn't fail. The Caleb that I know always always gets the job done. The Caleb that I know, and I'm like, can somebody just give me permission to quit, please? <laughs> can somebody just give me the permission to quit? And that really, that followed me all the way up into my adult life. I'm in the middle of the NFL, and I'm literally asking that. Somebody tell me what to do in my life. There's no self-agency, right? There's no, there's no sense of self-responsibility. There's no like, somebody please give me the permission to walk away. And that that took a lot of time for me to actually find... Um, that courage to own my life. Yeah, I, I and you know, I, I, I keep going back to to what what we were talking about at the beginning of this week, and and there's a part of me, uh, there's a ang- there was a real anger part of me, to be quite honest, uh, when I when I thought about what happened in Texas, and but then I thought about the shooter, and I thought what. That's what we all do in this work. What happened? And then I began to watch these interviews. And one of the interviews was uh, one of his family members. And they said uh, he was picked on his whole educational experience because he had a stutter. Um, And I started thinking about this. And, And what you just said is these layers of experiences when you're a kid Sometimes it doesn't even, people wouldn't qualify it as adversity, right? Especially when we're looking just at what the ACE study looked at. But, but now we're broadening our scope of what is adversity. And there's a lot that plays a role in that. And then you add the stress. And then you add, 
he dropped out of school. And by no means am I justifying any of it because yeah. there is no reason. But again, this is the, the name of this podcast is history, culture, and trauma. So we have to go back to say, what can we do differently? And that's where I say, where can we as a system, right? Where can we shift when we see kids because he wasn't going to graduate? He quit going to school. Where can we say, this is where we step in? And I think when I hear your experiences of perfection, 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 I think so many kids experience that. I'm not going to lie to you. I was kind of in a moment of reflection with myself as a parent um, and thinking about just a couple of weeks ago, my son scoring the soccer goal. And I did get so excited, but then I'm like, wait a minute. Do I get frustrated when he's not hustling? Yeah. Do I think he has it? Yes. Did I express that? Maybe. And so I think there's so many pieces of these puzzles that just on the surface, we can say this 18-year-old just did this. But there's so much more to all of these pieces than just what's on the surface. Yeah. I think you bring up a great point, too, of like how quickly we rush to labels to define and to really prevent us from asking these harder questions, from asking, like, going deeper into the history. It's easy to label like, you know, he was sick. He was this, he was that, he was this, he was that. And we see it happening all the time. So quickly people are to rush, to judge and to label what this person is. And I think we do it just to prevent ourselves from going a little bit deeper and understanding the complexity that is all around every single one of us. And truthfully, truthfully, like I'm a, a white heterosexual male. I was born into privilege. I can tell you right now that if I was living more in the marginalized communities and I was not having the, the sense of some safety of the people that truly loved me and support systems around side of me, that rage, that pursuit of excellence that I internalized at a very young age eventually morphed into rage. And I was able to use that rage and channel that rage to become a great football player. But make no mistake, that rage also surfaced offside, outside of the field. And I, am, I can't be ignorant enough to say that, you know what, that could never have been me. Because it damn well could have been me. Like if I did not have some of the support systems around me later on throughout teams and sports and having some little ideas or experiences of community where it gave me just a little bit of hope and healing to continue down and kick this can down the road of my life, like it could have been me. It definitely could have been me. And I, and I hate to say that, but it's scary to say that. I don't think any of us are really exempt because trauma does not discriminate in a lot of ways, right? Like we are all susceptible to our own pain and it's about how we handle our pain um, and the choices that we make. And really, how do we create, as you said, Matt, like, how do we create systems that can help these young men, these young women that are so, so terribly hurting walk through it um, so that they can come out on the other side? Yeah. And when we talk about systems too, this, this makes me think that um, this issue of school shootings or mass shootings in general um, and how we, how it connects to how we raise boys in this country. Uh, and so even, you know, while we're talking, we're talking about the military, uh, football, um, these are very uh, masculine <laughs> sort of uh, spaces. And um, 
And then when we look at kind of what our profile, and I use that word <laughs> in the most clinical sense, um, of a um, mass shooter or school shooter, they are overwhelmingly male. Yes. Um, and what does that say about our society and how we are raising boys? Um, and even tying it back to what you said about, you know, how you felt when you scored the winning touchdown and how people were or seemed to be very happy uh, and praised you and how this, you know, registered to you in your child's mind. And then what does it look like when children are not getting enough of that? So they're not getting any of those positive experiences where they even can say, okay, I'm getting a lot of praise. I did a good thing here. Or, um, or again, that, that, that positive is, is very selective when they're displaying very masculine behaviors. And, and so what is your take on, on that, Caleb? Why, why are we having this issue? And it seems to be very focused on, on um, our boys and yeah. young, young men. Oh, I, I think that's such a, a, a beautiful question to ask. And it's probably, you know, multi-layered in the answers. And I can only kind of speak from my own experiences because I was somebody, you know, to give you a little bit of context, when I was a freshman at West Point, if you're not familiar with West Point, you have a lot of rules <laughs> your freshman year. And one of the rules is essentially, you know, you cannot uncup your hands the entire year unless you are inside of an academic building or inside of your uh, barrack room, and then you can uncup your hands. And it's just a discipline thing. But my God, it is so frustrating. And it, it took a toll on me. And I remember having a hard time, a hard day. And I walked out of my barrack room into the hallway, which immediately means your hands are cupped. Your shirt is tucked in. You have the perfect uniform on. You walk alongside of the wall. You don't look around. You don't talk. And I was walking to the bathroom. And I didn't have my hands cupped. And part of my shirt, the front part of my shirt was untucked. And immediately, the upperclassmen uh, saw me, noticed me. He got me up on the wall and he just hazed the hell out of me, right? Just verbally hazed the hell out of me and went at it. And I snapped. I snapped to the point of just hitting myself and screaming at the top of my, my lungs and just asking him to hit me, hit me, hit me because I needed to fight. Like I wanted him to give me an excuse just to unleash hell on him. And I was so angry and so much rage and I was just hitting myself. And then I started breaking down sobbing. And at this point, the entire floor of this room is in the hallway staring at the commotion and understanding like what the hell just happened. And then I run off and I know I'm in a, a lot of trouble at the military academy for acting in that way. But I tell you that story because it took me several years and I used to, I used to love my rage. Uh, you know, the first time I went to the school psychologist at West Point, he looked at me after having an hour and a half session with him. He says, Caleb, has nobody told you, like, have you ever been clinically diagnosed, you know, depressed? Have you ever been, you know, have you been seen as, as, from a doctor in regards to depression? And I'm like, no, like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I need to talk to you about this. And he gave me a script for pills to help me with my now new depression that I never knew anything about. And no way I had that. I'm a good evangelical Bible belt boy that, you know, God first and everything that I do, I don't have depression in my religious upbringing is a whole other story. I digress. I'm sorry. Um, but I remember getting my first, my, my uh, prescription filled for antidepressant meds. And the only question that I had the doctor when I picked them up that day is I said, 
will this take away my rage? Because I don't want to live without my rage. My rage is the way that I survive in this world. My wet rage is the way that I reclaim, um, reclaim safety or a sense of safety, or if I'm feeling exposed and vulnerable, rage is the way that I get through and protect myself. Like, I don't want that. And so I didn't take them. I flushed them down the toilet. Go on to say all of this, that this rage had lived in me for so many years and it took years of therapy to begin to really see and draw the connection from my own life. What, what, what is at the bottom of my own rage? And it is in so many ways, like never being able to fully process my emotions, never being able to give in a safe space to cry, you know, never been like, it's that beautiful meme out there. The quote, I can't remember who says it, you know, like we will beat our chest until it's red just because we never have a chance to cry. Um, I, I, I can only speak from my personal experience, Ingrid. And I also grew up as I kind of alluded to inside of the church, I, I had so much repressed emotions around my sexuality, the body shame, the, the, like just growing up inside of the purity culture, which is a whole other conversation, <laughs> growing up inside of purity culture movement, um, and never given the language or the opportunity to talk about what is so normal inside of every single one of our bodies as we grow in age and feeling so much shame around my body and repressing it and suppressing and ignoring all of these things. Um, it took me years to see that there was a direct connection between my em repressed emotional state around my sexuality and the rage that I carry as a man. Um, and I, and I honestly, I see, you know, a lot of these, uh, uh, I don't, I don't want to characterize it, but I know for me and from the own conversations that I have, a lot of men raised in, raised in evangelical Christianity that had never been given a safe space to ex fully express themselves, fully accept themselves, um, have internalized that experience and it's materialized as rage in their life. Does that answer your question? Very long-winded, I apologize. <laughs> it definitely does answer my question. It brings up a lot more. And so, yes, I, I appreciate you talking about your rage and I think it's fitting because often... Uh, in my experience, working as a crisis counselor, um, rage is often one of the emotions that um, young boys and men are allowed to have. Mm -hmm. um, and other emotions, they are not allowed to have. And, and so my friend often calls it the man box in that in our society, we have uh, put men and boys into this really small box. Yeah. Of what's acceptable when it comes to their expression, sexuality, emotions, how they dress, um, how they interact with their friends, how they interact with their um, in their romantic relationships. That there's very small box that that is labeled what's masculine and what's not. Uh, and fitting into that small box means that you have limited um, yes. options yeah. and that that limitation can be very frustrating and, of course, results in more rage. Absolutely. I think there's just so many suppressed parts of me. And you think about like shame, this fear at the end of the day, when, even if you look at Brene Brown's work, the shame, you know, it's the difference between guilt and shame, right? Guilt. I did something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. Um, and if I'm walking around every single day and there's a part of me that I just so inherently believe is flawed and broken, you better believe I'm going to do everything I can to protect myself from ever being exposed. So anytime I feel vulnerable, anytime I feel that threat of being exposed, 
my, I think for a lot of us, our go-to is raised to kind of, because of the traditional roles of masculinity, I'm not going to retreat back off and disappear because it's now kind of seen like you're a coward. You don't have what it takes, right? So I'm going to meet it head on. And then as a result, I need to bring all of this energy uh, to the table at one moment. And it comes out like this outburst of rage. And it's all because I am, I'm protecting because this little, little boy inside of me is just draped and drowning in shame. Well, and uh, of course I'm just sitting here in my thoughts cause that's what I do. But <laughs> yesterday I was watching the press conference um, when they were sitting on a stage, it was all the government officials. Yeah. And, and I, I watched their expressions. I watched how they held themselves. And what you just said about men not being able to express and having to keep this these emotions suppressed, it was there. And mm-hmm. it was done in a way that was so obvious where you could tell people were hurting, but they, they had to keep on that face. And then um Beto O'Rourke, the yeah. senator from Texas, came in and was expressing Absolutely. that's where the rage came in, where people began to yell and scream and cuss. Those emotions were all in there. But oh, I thought if only they could take that emotion that they felt in that moment and feel the other feelings that they were feeling, how much of an impact that the outcome could have been in that conference where we actually began to address more of the problems, but you're right. And, and Caleb, you know, this, you and I have very similar upbringings. Um, and I felt a lot of what you said where perfection and shame, uh, were driven in the culture. I was raised in, in an evangelical home where you weren't allowed to question. And the idea of therapeutic support, um, wasn't even on the table. Matter of fact, it was taboo. Yes. Um, it was taboo until my mom passed away a year and a half ago who struggled severely with depression. And I would say, mom, just talk to somebody. There's people who are trained. No. Yeah. And I think that goes down to what we, what we, we need to be talking about as we move through these mass shootings, not just the school shooting, but the one that also occurred in the grocery store where we've got to start thinking about how do we shift these paradigms? How do we begin to say, why does this keep happening again? And those, it comes down to having honest, open, vulnerable conversations uh, where we want to start addressing not just what's happened now, but what's happened over time and historically, because it's, this is not a culmination of current times. This is a culmination of things that have been happening systematically for literally decades, if not, well, centuries, actually. Um, it's, it's just, I, I just find it, um, I, I like to watch people. And I found in that press conference, I just watched them. I watched their reactions. And it, it was very transparent that they were living in that masculine. There was only one woman on the stage, by the way. I did note that. But they were living in that masculine, emotional grasp of but the problem with it i think matthew just a second what you're saying before we go to a break it's 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 living in that masculine box but calling it faith like let's get real and i think that's so much of the challenges that we're facing and especially some more of these evangelical dominated states that we call it faith and this is what the problem with growing up like there was no emotional literacy why because i was always told that jesus took care of it i was always told the price has been paid i was always told just to believe god more have more faith 
right? Nobody ever met me in my pain. They told me to spiritually bypass my pain. And then as a result, what do we get? We get a lot of men that are walking around repressed as hell, not knowing how to process their damn feelings. Yeah, I think this is a great conversation and we'll stop here and take a break. And then I, we're talking about a lot. We're, it's, we're definitely on a gender trend right now. So let's pick up and talk about this after the break, because this is really getting into what we would call toxic masculinity. And we'll talk about it more when we get back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Thanks for joining us. We're back. Um, In the first half, we really... Um, we're kind of all over the place. We, like I said, we we had to pivot um, because we want to be relevant to kind of what's going on presently. And I know what's going, what a lot of people are thinking about currently, which is the um, the shooting at Rob Elementary School in Texas. Um, and so we have Caleb Campbell here today with us, um, really reflecting on his mental health journey. Uh, and in that first segment, we talked a lot about gender. And we definitely talked about religion. And so as we um, close the first segment out, um, I kind of gave name to what we're talking about, especially when it comes to kind of our, our, our profile of mass shooters, um, including school shooters, which is thinking through what is happening with our young boys and men, um, which gave root to a conversation around toxic masculinity. And just to give some History, toxic masculinity is, it gets a bad rap, the term itself, uh, right. because it has somehow become kind of a feminist uh, talking point. But to be very clear about the, the history of the saying, it came from men talking about their experiences uh, and how, again, they were kind of limited in their ability to express themselves in, in whatever manner, be it sexuality in relationships, all relationships, not just romantic, but all relationships, very much uh, kind of in the man box, um, which is something I heard from a friend of mine uh, uh, named Tracy, and she she calls it the man box. So I want to give 
credit. <laughs> I don't know if that's Tracy's saying, but it, but this is where I got it from. And so the man box, meaning that young boys and men are very limited in their expression that then leads to a sense of frustration and rage that can manifest in violence amongst other uh, behaviors. And so I want to continue that conversation. And we also want to talk a little bit about um, what Caleb brought up before around religion and how that also plays a role in um, not so much violence, but definitely in um, limiting our emotional expression or, um, or, you know, not even seeking mental health care um, because we want to be grounded in faith as opposed to medicine or science. Uh, and so let's pick back up where we were talking before. Um, Caleb, I mean, do, does the term toxic masculinity <laughs> resonate with you or how do you yeah, feel about that term? I think it really does. And I know like I have kind of opted out of the ongoing debates and the, the battles between you know, all the, the different sides and the different discussions around that topic. But I do, I, I think they're 100% is a toxic masculinity. Um, and does like, does every person with toxic masculinity or masculine traits go on to be a, a mass shooter? Absolutely not. Right. But do, I would say arguably almost all of the mass shooters that we have seen in the United States demonstrate some sort of toxic masculinity inside of their lives? Absolutely. And so I think it is a problem. I think that people are too, it has become politicized in a lot of ways. Like even now I have to, when I'm speaking inside of schools, I have to uh, have a lot of conversations with random parents reaching out to me because they think that the social emotional learning skills that we're going to be talking about is going to weaken their masculinity. (laughs) And I'm just like, wait, what? And then I realized this kid doesn't have a fighting chance when he's going home to this, like, come on. And so I, I do think it's an important term. I do think it's an important topic. Um, you know, it, we need the feminine as much as we need the masculine. We need the masculine just as much as we need the feminine. And so much, it's like, I don't care. I want to be a whole man. Mm. I, I want to be a whole man, right? And that's going to be uh, the part of my masculine is going to come into play. And then part of my feminine is going to come, to come into play. And it's just even like spiritually speaking, I need this, this mobilized energy, Right, I need this mobilized energies to, to to move my life forward, but I also need to embrace the feminine sides of me and learn how to trust and learn how to surrender, learn how to let go, learn how to process my emotions and to fill into things, take tolerable steps. Like I want to be and I want to create a world where there are whole people showing up, right? And as long as we just stay in these fights of talking about this is what toxic masculinity and this is what this is your agenda attached to and this is what and this and, and this and this. Like, come on, at some point, your need to be right has to, you have to drop it and you have to be willing to do the work yourself and really ask, like, what are you so afraid about? Like, truly, what are you so scared about? And maybe start with that. And so I don't know if I gave you an answer there, um, but yeah, it's still a thing and it's still a problem and it's still a challenge and it's still something that we need to actively, um, actively work towards reconciling in this country. Well, and I think what you're talking about is just the human experience. I mean, all of those things are just human experiences. It's whether we can process them, whether we have the ability to understand the feelings, emotional and physical feelings when those emotions happen. And I think that's what we have to continue to reinforce is that's the human experience. Yeah. All of those emotions 
deemed whatever classification, feminine or masculine, all of those emotions fit in the range of the human experience at some point for all of us. And I think that's what we have to focus on. Um, but I do, I do, I can, and I can go to tell what you were talking about, Caleb, of that, that continual idea of having to suppress those emotions and not be able to talk about it and pray it away. And all of those pieces are real for a lot of boys raised in homes where you can't feel that. Or I loved this one, especially as a principal, the idea that physical aggression is the way you solve the problem. And I've heard it a thousand times um, that that is how, that's how you're going to solve the problem. And I get it in a lot of places and spaces, right? A lot of it is safety driven, but this is not something that it, 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 it's encompassing in a lot of different communities, a lot, not just the evangelical community, although I, I believe that it is in that space too, but I believe that this is part of the human experience, all of these emotions. Yeah. And I think once we, like you said, once you realized, hold on a minute, these are all part of what it is to be human, that there isn't necessarily something wrong with you, right? It's just how and what has happened that has has created this mindset that ultimately drove you uh, into almost losing your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have to see all of these aspects of what drives us as humans to do what we do. Yeah. It's been funny to watch like the, I don't like... When I first started doing this work, a lot of people reached out to me and they were like, you should really, you know, speak to men um, and, you know, help men and all of this stuff. And I'm like, it, it doesn't appeal to me because it's never been about like healing the toxic masculine traits in my life as much as I, as what I said earlier, I've been, I wanted to be free in my life. I wanted to feel safe in my body. I wanted to feel connected to my life. I wanted to be present in this human experience. I wanted to go from like, endless striving to co-partnering and kind of creating this life that I get to live and enjoy in the damn process. Like I just wanted to feel free. And part of that freedom and the pursuit of freedom was definitely healing a lot of the toxic masculine traits that I was embodying and carrying in my life. But it's just been funny for me to sit back and watch because I honestly, I work better well with women, um, like in terms of uh, some of this emotional intelligence work. Uh, but it, like you go from like really repressed men who you know continually beat their chest and they act like six-year-olds in an adult body, and then it swung to the other side of now we've got you know all the movements of no offense like big beards, flannels, cigar smoking, bourbon drinking, gun shooting, flag flying men who can talk about their feelings. And <laughs> at the end of the day, it's just like we're going from one side of the other to the other when we're really missing the point of all of this. And this is truly not for you to fit into a camp. Or you know, try to be something other than who you are. It's about just showing up as your whole self and it being enough. Because of what it still looks like to me is like you're still compensating for something, right? And your need to be right or your need to say it's this way is the only way. Your need for whatever, like that need attached to your purpose or that need attached to your pursuit. It just tells me that there's still underlying fear that you're afraid to look at. Little rant. Yeah, I. This whole conversation is is so multi-layered, um, and it it really uh, it really like you said a whole being a whole person yeah. and how all the ways that our society is is pushing all of us into into boxes, um, yeah. uh, and it seems to be more apparent with men and boys. 
Um, but we are all pushed into these boxes of gender and race and socioeconomic um, status and things of this nature. And, you know, religion is, is often a piece of that um, because uh, it, it, it teaches us it, at least organized religion is as opposed to spirituality. It teaches yeah. us that um, we, we do have to fall back on faith and that it tells us that we, we shouldn't, um, well, I won't say shouldn't, it is internalized in our society as there's no need to seek help outside of, mm-hmm. of ourselves. Um, there's a lot of stigma involved in religion. Um, and so in that may be something that resonates with you um, and oh, yeah. in your experience. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, Ingrid, we just became best friends. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that is the source of so much of uh, a lot of my, you know, adverse childhood experiences uh, would be centered around my my role in organized religion, my experience inside of evangelical Christianity. Uh, it is genius to find a scapegoat for all of our problems, to continue to protect ourselves from the vulnerability that's necessary to actually transform our lives. It is genius to create a, a narrative that, you know what, we just got to believe. And if we believe long enough, if we have more enough faith, if we worship hard enough, if we pray hard enough, our life will change. God, God, will, God will move on our behalf. Meanwhile, we refuse to ever take full responsibility for our lives, right? It's genius to have all of these narratives at bay to really protect ourselves from the vulnerability of stepping into the, the, the uncertainty and navigating the murky waters of uh, emotional pain and trauma so that we can actually transform and alchemize this pain and create light so that we can actually do the work that if we want to say from Christianity, Jesus, Jesus calls us to do, and that's bring heaven to earth, right? We're not bringing heaven to earth when all we're doing is paying our trauma forward to the next generation. And we do all of this by believing that, you know, especially growing up in the evangelical church, like I was met every time with just have more faith. The work is done, right? You're not works oriented, you're grace oriented. You just got to believe, you just got to accept, you just got to receive. I'm sorry, but it took me a lot of years to recognize that, you know what, my ability to receive is greatly reduced when I'm living in a survival response, (laughs) right? And then it was also genius for us to always point the finger at the devil, right? This idea of spiritual attacks, demonic attacks, you know, coming after us because we're doing God's work. Meanwhile, we point the finger out there because we're afraid to point the, the finger at the devil inside of us. Right? We're afraid to look at the mirror and say like, oh no, my pain is recreating these traumatic situations to validate what I already experienced. And all it takes is a little bit of knowledge and understanding physiologically what's happening in our autonomic nervous systems to recognize that, oh, there's a whole experience on the other side of these narratives around Christianity that we can begin to actually experience the heaven on earth that Jesus constantly freaking talked about. And so, I, this is like... A, this is a, a very sensitive and very like passionate topic for me because people are walking around and they're feeling imprisoned in their lives and they're doing everything they can to barely hold on. They are surviving. They are successively surviving their life and they're trying to maintain this image of God is good, trust God, believe God. And it took me years to realize that, you know what, 
my relationship with God was one of the most codependent relationships I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and any codependent relation is not healthy, right? And so I had to, I had to deconstruct the codependency around my relationship with God. And I don't think a lot of people recognize that, yes, your need for God, I understand the sentiment around that, but in a lot of ways, it's, it's toxic, it's 100% toxic. And if you recognize that, you know what, your need for God really speaks to your inability to trust yourself. And you can't trust yourself because you're walking around with loads of unresolved trauma and unresolved pain because you don't even know yourself under all that pain. No wonder you can't trust yourself. And of course, it's easy to trust God. So we can keep going and going. And then the last thing I want to say about this, especially in the wake of the, 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 the recent events in America and looking at the onslaught of Christians and politicians and, and evangelical leaders talking about, we need to return to God. We need to return to God. We need to return to God. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Return to like, to what God return to the God that is, you know, treating the immigrant, the refugee and the marginalized like they do, like, like, like he has it abandoned them. The God that's treating the LGBTQ community, like they're not accepted. The God that's treating the immigrant, like they don't have a seat at the table. The God that looks like Jesus draped in an American flag. And if you don't walk like us, talk like us, or act like us, you know what? You don't have a seat at the table. Like that's the God we're returning to. Like get the hell out of here. We have to have a deeper conversation about spirituality. And that's not only going to happen if we're willing to confront and to work through our own pain, because it's through our own pain and alchemizing our own pain. Can we expand our revelation of love? And it's through that revelation of love that we're going to meet other people with more compassion, more empathy, and more kindness. And that's what's going to revolutionize the world. Yeah, this really resonates with me in my understanding of what we call post-traumatic growth. So as we go through traumatic experiences, we go through a process of meaning making. Uh, And that meaning making process can be uh, really deeply entrenched in our religious beliefs or, you know, whatever identity we we feel more um, closely, you know, tied to. But at the end of the day, as we go through the meaning making process, then we can experience the growth that is needed. I, I do want to, I mean, we often talk about uh, systems, but I do want to spend the, the rest of our time really talking about your individual experience. So we, you know, what got you over the hump? What does, what was your experience when it came to resolving your trauma and um, that brought you to this point today? There's a lot of things. Um you know, it's a whole other conversation, but the conversations around psychedelics is definitely something that I would love to have at some point. Uh, but even before that, you know, I, I just, I found myself waking up and the life that I wanted was not the life that I had. And I knew that something had to change. And despite working hard, despite trying to hold it all together, despite trying to believe enough, worship enough, pray enough, I was always falling short. And that despair, that hopelessness, that disappointment and frustration, I think, led me to a place where I either say, I'm no longer going to be here. I'm done with this life altogether. Or there was a moment that something clicked inside of me and I said, I'm going to figure this out. And if it takes me the rest of my life, I'm good with that. I will commit and give the rest of my life to better understanding how I walk out of this this darkness, how I walk out of this dark night of the soul that I was experiencing. I would have said it was the dark night of the soul, but little did I know at that time, I was just getting ready to enter into the dark night of the soul for my own life, right? I was just swimming in the ramifications of just living uh, a life full of, you know, emotional repression and trauma responses and, you know, just chaos. I created the chaos in my life. 
And so there was just a moment where I realized something had to change. And if I'm going to say yes to it, um, I have to go all in. And I did. I left the NFL. I moved to Canada. I became a janitor of an organization that told me they would give me free therapy because I wasted all or you know, I spent all my money at you know, bars and clubs and, and, on, and on drugs. Um, and I became a janitor of an organization. I slept on the basement floor of a boiler room uh, for about five years. And I, I cleaned toilets and I washed windows and I went to weekly therapy. And I started to get the language around and started to understand, you know, and connect the dots. That was the beautiful thing. You start working through this and you connect the dots and suddenly you start realizing that, oh, like I have more control over this than I think. Right? Like I am more of an author of my destiny than I would ever think. Like I, I this is, it started to also create tons of self-confidence that I might not have the answer. I might not know how to get through the, or, you know, how to make this work or how to succeed in this. But I know that I've been through hell and back and I'm still standing and I'm doing it in a way that I'm doing it in an emotionally honest way. Right. And I, and I'm not like, I'm not doing it at the expense of myself that I'm so used to like that created a, a level of self-confidence in me that was so foreign to me because up until this point, I only had confidence around my skill set. I only had confidence around my, my ability to run a 40 yard dash in a really fast time for my size or my ability to make big plays on the football field. But the thing is, is when I got to the NFL, suddenly everybody was big and fast. Everybody was good. And so I didn't have any confidence in knowing who I was, but this process of working through my trauma, working through my pain and getting the language and the emotional literacy around the process, it created such a surge of self-efficacy and responsibility and really confidence that says, hey, I can do this. And it's just been an ongoing process ever since then. It's funny because the first thing that I wanted to do, I'm talking a lot, so interrupt me if you need to. The first thing that I wanted to do is like, I, I turned my, my whole life was one big performance, but then I would turn my healing into a performance. And then it was like, oh, you're vulnerable. I can be more vulnerable. <laughs> you know, like I would turn my whole healing journey into a performance. And I, for the longest time, and this is why I'm so passionate about the intersection of inner healing and spirituality, um, because for the longest time, I thought that my healing journey and doing this work was going to lead me to a bigger, better, greater life that I so much long for. And it took me years of saying yes to this journey and following my own heart um, that I realized that the, the true work of the healing journey is for me to wake up and accept who I am, where I am to fall in my love with my life here and now, to become more rooted and grounded. Rilke is one of my favorite poets. And he says, if we could just surrender to earth's intelligence, we too could rise up rooted like trees. Like what does it mean to surrender to earth's intelligence? And when you look at earth's intelligence, there's seasons of life for everything. There's a season of death and then there's a season of blooming and new life, you know? And then just the same way, we're going through these metaphorical seasons of death of no longer identifying with the parts of us that we needed to protect ourselves. Because as we learn how to teach the younger version of who we are, that nervous system that we're safe in our life, we can shed old identities, we can shed old belief systems, and we continue to grow into who we're becoming. So as I learn how to go through my own liminal space between death and new life, I learned how to surrender to earth's intelligence. And I too became rooted and grounded in my own life. And that's really become like the, and I, there was a moment that I woke up and I, last thing I'll say, and I realized that the ground that I have been so trying to attain 
this entire time by doing, being, hustling, running, striving, succeeding. The ground that I've been trying to attain my entire life has been the ground that I've been standing on this entire time. And that clicked. And that's when I realized that the sole job of healing is to become more present in my body, more present in my life, more connected to myself, because the direct correlation between being able to connect to other people and build the deep connections that really is the lifeline of our experiences is directly correlated to my ability to connect to myself. Yeah. Rant over. <laughs> <laughs> that really resonates with me because that's how I feel about the Paces movement, that, that it is about um, kind of an awakening in ourselves yeah. to understand that we are in control of our evolution as we create environment for ourselves as, as human beings, yeah. then we can ensure that we have environments that ensure our, our, our thriving, our flourishing, Amen. as opposed to creating school shooters. Yeah, absolutely. Come on. I mean, I'm speechless. I'm just, I, 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 you're right. And I, you, so much of what you said continues to, to resonate with me. And I think it's why we have this podcast. It's why PACES exists. It's why you do the work is because we want people to see that there is despair, but there's also hope. Yeah, come on. And I think in our past episode with Dr. Sege, he talked about this framework of hope and the importance of connecting to each other on a human level, not on a geographical level, not on a racial level, but connecting to seeing each other as people. And what you said was just that we have to first see ourselves mm -hmm. before we can start seeing other people as individuals. And I think that listening to you, just having talked to Dr. Sege a couple weeks ago, I have hope. And I think that's what we have to leave this conversation with because if we can do this work, not just individually, but collectively, that hope is an outcome and hope is what we strive to continue to do, which is exactly why we're doing what we do. And that is to build a collective community of hope and change what has not been working. Um, because we, we, it's our requirement as human beings on this earth, um, we have to continue to make it better for everyone. Um, not just ourselves, but everyone. So good, man. Yeah. Well, thank you, um, Caleb, for joining us today. Um, this conversation has really been, you know, for me personally, it's been helpful because it's been some, some dark times the last couple of days. So hope is where we'll end this. And so thank you so much for joining us on History, Culture, Trauma. And um, definitely keep yourselves, uh, take care of yourselves during this time during these times. Thanks for having me. Bless you both. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.